Good morning, everyone. All right, chatteroo time is over, as Will would say. Will, you confused me this morning. I was, I was pronouncing Sarai as Sarai. You said Sarai. Now, now I don't know which to say. <laughs> Can we have a third vote? <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, we're in Genesis 16 this morning. And before we start, we'll, we'll pray and just ask God to bless his time, or this time with him, Lord. Uh, Lord, thank you that um, you've collected us all here this Sunday morning in church. Um, I believe we're, we're here for a reason, Lord, to um, whatever way your plan, your plan of providence works out, Lord, we don't know, but we're here for this reason, maybe to hear something new this morning, or uh, maybe to hear something old that has been renewed for us uh, at this particular time, Father. So help us to be, as Will said, uh, of you know, soft hearts and good soil, ready to receive the word, and help us to be changed by the word, more importantly. That's the heart of it, Lord. Uh, in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. <coughs> so, um, yeah, I was just listening to the news on the car and our, on the car radio on the way in, and it suddenly, well, it didn't suddenly, I almost kind of knew it, but <laughs> it was reinforced. This, this, this life is hard, isn't it? I mean, there's so much stuff happening in the world at the moment, um, and it's, it's, it just struck me, it's a fine line between everything going really well in your life or pretty good to just things completely changing and, and things turning out disastrously. I mean, think of those 25 funerals that are going to be over in Alabama this week because of a tornado that ran through a couple of neighborhoods during the week in America. Um, relational breakdowns in our own personal lives, um, loss of a good job maybe, we don't know if it's around the corner or not. Diagnosis of an illness, we all know people that have suddenly had diagnosis of cancers and it's just been life-changing and completely out of the blue. And really, if we're honest, we can see that we have very little control of our lives. In fact, we have no control of our lives. And if you're sitting here this morning um, thinking you have control of your life, well, you're dead wrong. <laughs> you don't have any control of your life. But we like to kind of preach this little lie to us that we are in control. And I think that no one really will seek Christ until they realize, number one, that they're not in control of their lives, and number two, that the world has nothing to offer them. And then God is ready to work with you. And that is, in fact, what we're kind of touching on today. Um, you know, for Christians as well, um, it's even harder because we're trying to live amidst the turmoil of life, amidst the turmoil of things possibly turning on its head in, in an instant. We're trying to live God-fearing and God-pleasing lives. And that can be difficult, especially when the world sometimes offers easy solutions. Um, should I take that job that's paying good money, but it's, uh, you know, it's cash under the table? Should I cheat in that exam if it means I'm, I'm going to get the course I want? Should I uh, reply to that horrible online com comment on the forum with a, an equally horrible one? Just, you know, kick and run. No one knows who I am. So leaning fully on God is difficult in times of trouble and turmoil in your life. And sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes we feel, and I feel, and I know I do this, I go it alone, you know. Um, I might be looking to get a solution from God for a problem that's in my life. I might have prayed. Nothing seems to be happening. And then I realize, you know, okay, um, maybe I'll just follow this voice that's in my heart that wants what I want in this particular situation. And then I find out it's not really what God wanted at all for me. 
or on the other hand, I might feel like a good boy and I've been praying for something for a long time and I've been waiting patiently and yet again, there's no clear discernible answer to my petition. And I feel, well, maybe, you know, if I act, that God will act with me. Maybe if I move, God will move. And then in my boldness, I might move and suddenly realize that it wasn't the right move or it wasn't God's time or maybe it wasn't God's time at all. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll fail. It might mean that you might succeed in what you wanted, but you'd be miserable. It'll be a miserable failure or a miserable success. You'll still be miserable. And at times like these, you'll feel spiritually dry. I do anyways. So as we examine the passage today, we have to look really at, we are looking at the, at the, at the life of Abram, who was a magnificent patriarch of the faith. Um, and as, as Jason was teaching us this morning about the book of Luke, the people, the Pharisees in the book of Luke regarded Abraham as, as nearly their God. That this man himself led broken, messy lives along with his wife and along with the whole household. And this is the kind of lives that we often lead, even as Christians. But one thing, or one question I'd like you all to have in the forefront of your mind as we go through the passage is, are all the decisions, are, are any of the decisions I make in my life, are they godly? Or am I making decisions on my own volition, following my own heart? Maybe not listening to God's voice, but listening to the voice in my heart that wants a particular result in a particular case for me. And, you know, as you ask yourself the question, are my decisions godly? Ask yourselves if they are ungodly, why do I sometimes make these decisions? And how can I avoid making ungodly decisions in my life? Because the passage, even though it's a nice, wonderful story, it is really a passage of warning and instruction. And we should try and learn plenty from it. You know, I remember when I was a young Christian reading, uh, and we're going through the Old Testament um, books in a, in a course that I'm doing online. I remember reading the Old Testament and seeing all these wonderful characters, Abraham and, and Jacob, and, and wondering, you know, how come uh, some of them in particular, you know, especially if you read the book of Judges and the Kings, how come some of them seem to be doing the same mistakes over and over again in their lives? You'd think they'd see a pattern in their lives. You'd think they'd be able to say, right, this mistake hasn't worked in, the prior, in, in a prior time. I'm not going to do it again. But that's not the way we work, is it, as people, and certainly even as Christians sometimes. We keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And I realize as I get older as a believer, and I read these books, instead of getting self-righteous like I was when I was a young believer, I can now see myself in the pages of these scriptures. And I don't know, do you feel the same way? I'm sure you do. Paul, even at the end of his life, that marvelous evangelist and man who was close to God, called himself the chief of sinners. But as we go through this passage, we'll have a look and see what was the cause of all the strife and all the trouble that we're reading about today. And if we track down to one of the first verses there in chapter 16, <coughs> we'll see that it begins, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And this is Sarai speaking, Abram's wife. Now we have to get a little bit of a picture here. Abram has been called out of his home place, the Ur of the Chaldees, about 10 years prior, which is present-day Babylon. They've been on the road. They've had a little sojourn down to Egypt because of a bad famine in the Promised Land. So they've been down there for a while. They got into a bit of a sticky situation with the Pharaoh down there. They're now back in the Promised Land 10 years later. Promises made to Abram that he would be the father of many nations, and nothing is happening. 
And Sarai is not young. And Abram is not young. And you can imagine them thinking to themselves, what's going on? So we can see Sarai says, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's just a tiny little verse that, but just think about it. The amount of pain that there must have been in that verse. Not alone in those days was it painful not to, it was painful in those days not to have children because there was an awful thing of public shame associated to it, a woman who was married not having a child. But think of the pain of Sarah's unanswered prayers as she probably petitioned God over and over again for an answer to this promise uh, that she had given her husband or that he had given her husband years prior. Think of all the blaming of God that she would have done. And think, of course, of all the pain that her unbelief would have brought her. So we can only imagine the conversations that Abram and Sarai had up to then. I'm sure there must have been an awful lot of conversations on this subject. When is this child going to appear? And their, test, their faith was being tested, no doubt, on a grand scale. So Sarai comes up with a plan. You can imagine, and it must, we must think, you know, part of this narrative history that are the narrative stories that we read in the Bible, including this particular one we read today, sometimes we have to try and sometimes we don't get all the answers. We don't get the full picture of what's going on there. And sometimes we have to sort of make, get into the story and get into the character's mind and try and figure out exactly what was going on in their mind. Not that we'll ever figure it out, but perhaps Sarai thought, you know what? God has made this great promise to my husband. Maybe God means that this promise will be fulfilled through another woman. Maybe not me, because after all, I'm old. So, she tells Abram to go in and try for a child with her servant, Hagar. Sounds reasonable, does it? Now, who is this Hagar? Well, Hagar was probably, uh, she was definitely an Egyptian, but she was probably a, a slave girl or a, a servant given to Sarai when she was down in Egypt. And when, was that, when there was that slight confusement over whether... Sarai was, you know, Abraham's sister or wife because the Pharaoh, of course, had earmarked her out and had showed favor to her and obviously had bestowed her with much gifts and Hagar probably uh, was a gift bestowed onto Sarai by Pharaoh. So here we have, of course, Hagar now has come up from Egypt, up in the promised land with this household and is a servant to Sarai. And Sarai is thinking, hmm, I wonder if Abraham tried to have a child with Hagar. That would be legit, wouldn't it? So what was the relationship? Because it kind of sounds strange, isn't it? Uh, that Syria would say to Hagar, go in and try and have a child with Hagar. What, would, what exactly would be the relationship between the two of them? Well, Abraham wouldn't necessarily have to marry Hagar. But some of the duties of, of marriage, for example, bearing a child, Hagar or Syria was willing um, to hand over to Hagar. And this was perfectly normal in that society. She was effectively a surrogate mother. And the child that would be born to them would be considered Abram's and Sarai's and not Abram and Hagar's. So Sarai probably figured, well, let's give God a hand here. I've waited. I've, I've, I've cried out to God. I've, I've, I've tried being patient. I've prayed. Nothing's happening. Let's move. Let's act. Let's see what God happens, what God does. And Hagar uh, conceives a child by Abram. So Sarah, I'm probably thinking, well, problem solved. You know, I was thinking when I was reading this, do I do this in my life sometimes? You know, do I jump the gun? Do I pray for direction on something in my life? And I don't get a clear answer. 
and I jump ahead and I make a decision for God. And sometimes, really, if I'm brutally honest, I'm kind of making the decision that I want to make myself. And we've all made unwise decisions. Um, it could be financial decisions. It could be something we've spent too much money on and we've gone on to suffer later financially. It could be relational issues. Perhaps we've had relationships with people that were just unsuited, wrong relationships, and they went on to hurt everyone involved. Or maybe a life, important life decision that you've tried to get God into to give you advice and there's no answer on it, so then you kind of push him aside and you say, okay, well, I'm going to move and act on my own, Lord. Now, that's fine. God will allow this in our lives and does, but there will be consequences. And God shows us there are consequences to our acts. Remember, remember David when he went in onto Bathsheba and he, he sinned with her. Um, God allowed that, didn't he? But there, was, there were huge consequences in David's life. He lost a child. He lost the one of his own household later on in life. So the, the consequences weren't just immediate. They were for the future. And of course, he lost the opportunity to build God the temple. So what God did here was he delayed the blessings, or even in the case of the temple, he didn't allow David to build the temple. And of course, a second consequence of jumping ahead of the Lord and making our own decisions is it always, or nearly always, brings pain to others. And we can see this clearly in this story today. Look at verse 5 here. Sarai, of course, thinking that if Hagar had a child, that that would be the end of the problem, that the heir would be. But it wasn't the end of the child. It actually created a new problem for her. Look at verse 5. May the wrong done to me be on you, she says to her husband. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So her instruction to Abram and his, and this is important, his agreeing to it caused strife and division amongst the marriage. Who was to blame? Well, Abram certainly showed weakness. You know, he went along, capitulated with, with Sarai's unbelief, and that caused an awful lot of problems. He was weak in another way. He was weak in that he was meant to be the spiritual head of the family. After all, God had spoken to him audibly on prior occasions. In a, he'd, three times, I think it says, even before this, God had spoken to him personally. You would have thought, boy, if God spoke to me personally, that would be a life changer. I do. And if God said jump, I'd say how, how high. <laughs> Abram had spoken, or God had spoken to Abram three times, and yet he capitulated, and he joined in Sarah in her unbelief. This was the great man Abraham, who just a chapter or two prior, actually what Leon was preaching on last week, that God counted his belief in all his promises as righteousness. And this short spell later, we have him joining with his wife in this dastardly plan, which was destined to be a, a complete failure. Does he remind you of anyone? You know, looking at Abram, it wasn't the first time that he had said something like this to his wife or that he had acted badly or wasn't a good role model to his wife. Remember when he went down to Egypt, he told Syria, he says, look at, we're going down here now. The Egyptians are going to perceive your beauty. So do you know what you do? You say that you're my sister and not my wife. But then there's a little caveat in there, a little reason, the motivation why Abram said that was, so things will go good for me. <laughs> he was thinking of his own skin. And now we have this disaster with Hagar. And then I think in the next chapter, he tries the same, you know, my wife is my sister, a plan with King Abimelech. 
and God has to bail him out. Three times in literally three chapters. And yet he keeps repeating the same mistake. This man that God has spoken to audibly three times. But there's hope for it yet. But he wasn't a good role model. He's, he's a weak spiritual leader at this time in his life as far as we can see. You would, you would imagine that he'd sat Syria down and said, look at Syria. I know it's been 10 years since we've been out of our lands. I know we've been wandering. We've been down to Egypt. We've had that little bit of a sticky situation with the Pharaoh. But you know what? God has come good. He's delivered us. And look where we are now. We have ample livestock. We have ample riches, great pasture, a promised land. Oh, I even have my own private army. God has come good. And I know things don't look good now, but we have to wait on God with patience. And we have to just continue praying. Now, no, do no doubts. Abraham probably would have comforted Syria many times like that. And who knows, again, reading something into the narrative that mightn't be there, but we can fairly assess that probably Syria had to comfort Abram with the same words as well at times, telling him to have faith and to hang on for God. But at this particular time in their lives, they've decided to go and act alone. So his weakness had consequences. It caused strife. Look at verse 5. <coughs> May the wrong be done on you. Um, may the wrong done to you be on me. I gave you my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now again, that's just one or two short sentences, short verses. We don't know how much grief was behind these verses in real life. I'm sure the arguments and the strife and the trouble went on for a long while. Now we see that Hagar conceived. And then we read that she became proud and treated her mistress with contempt. Some of your translations might say despised uh, her mistress. Think of it from Hagar's point of view. Because really, if we look at this passage today, we can really nearly put ourselves in all three of the main protagonists' shoes. Think of it from Hagar's point of view. She's now conceived a child by one of the most powerful, influential, and richest men in the Middle East. And she's feeling a bit smug. She's feeling more blessed than her mistress. And she's letting her mistress know this. She's rubbing it in. So, of course, she regards herself now as very well regarded in society. A woman on the up. And, of course, Sarai complains to her husband. Behold, your servant is in your... Complains to her husband. And listen to Abram's response. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her... As you please. And then we read, Then Syriai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her home. What do you think of that? Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Do they sound like the noble words of a man who's spoken with God three times? Sounds like he's chickening out there a bit, doesn't he? He's letting her kind of take, you know, he's, 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 he's cleaning himself of the decision that he, or as of the deal that he went into prior, he's, when he agreed with Syria's plan. He's kind of he's saying now, you know, I, let's just forget about the whole thing, you know, do whatever you want with her now. This is outrageous. And you know what? Before we're too judgmental, 
do we, do we do this or do we say this at times in our lives, in decisions that we make, disastrous decisions that we thought were godly, but we kind of knew at the back of our mind we probably rushed it and didn't wait for them, and they go wrong? Do we then kind of distance ourselves from those decisions? In fact, we, we probably do. Not, they don't have to be godly or ungodly decisions. Many bad decisions we make in life, we just distance ourselves from them or kind of disown them when they don't turn out and kind of have a kind of a philosophy in our heads. I didn't really mean it like that anyways, you know? And this is kind of the feeling perhaps that I get from here. I could be incorrect from Abram. He's sort of distancing himself from his decision to support Sarai and going in and trying to have a child with Hagar. And then he kind of just hands her over to Hagar. And you have to remember that Hagar and Sarai were probably hopping up one another by now anyways. It called for a fair referee between the two. And Abram just says, well, look, do what you want. She's your slave. That's where you gave, that's where you gave her to me in the first place. I couldn't take her. You allowed me. So, you know, do what you want with her now. I'd love to understand more of what went on, of what was going on in Abram's mind at that time. After all, when Hagar fled from her home, for all intents and purposes, Abram didn't know that the child in Hagar's womb wasn't the child of promise. Sure he didn't. Everything that, you know, all the conversations that, ha that Sarai and Abram had up to now about this dastardly plan, they probably thought, well, the child would definitely be the child of promise then, because God did promise that you know, you're going to have a child, and that through that child, the nations will be blessed. And yet, Abram is prepared to let Hagar wander away from home, with possibly the child of promise in her womb. Pretty weak spiritual head, I'd say. Of course, Hagar as well has much to blame. She's, she, was just pride, she was just proud and prideful. So Sarai's dependence on her own wisdom has bought grief, and tension and strife in the family and the household. But as we'll see later on briefly, we'll see that her pride and the tension it brought had graver consequences as well. But you know what? God acts, and God acts in our life as well. And he sees Hag Hagar's pain. Now, Hagar is in despair. Now, when she went home or when she was on her way home, again, try and put yourself in her shoes. Where's her home? It's in Egypt. And it's about, seemingly, about 150 miles from where she is now. And there's very little good land between her and home. It's pretty much just arid desert. So God finds this poor Hagar down by a well, sitting down, maybe her last bit of water, maybe she just hasn't the courage to go on anymore. She's afraid to leave the well. She's in despair. She's probably crying her heart out, wondering what's going on in her life. She's just left a great, comfortable family. And now she might be on the brink of death even. Sarai's cruelty had collided with her pride. But the angel of the Lord had found her. Now when we read about the angel of the Lord in the scriptures, it, it often means a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ, Jesus himself. And the angel, or Jesus, asks her two questions. And in verse 8, in verse 9, tells her what to do. And at verses 11 to 12, prophesizes. And the two questions that he asks her, and they're weighty questions, are where have you come from? And where are you going? And we can ask the same questions of ourselves this morning. Where have we come from? And where are we going? And she said, I am fleeing for my mistress, Sarai. In verse 9, he tells her what to do. He said, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress 
and submit to her. Boy, she, like, she, was probably, she was probably happy with that, wasn't she? Go home to your mistress and submit to her. And then the angel of the Lord blesses her in verse 10. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be counted for the multitude. Boy, I'd say she was surprised hearing this. And then in verses 11 to 12, God shows his calling card, prophecy. And so he shows her things that only he could have known. Behold, he said to her, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, if you were Hagar, what would you make of that? She responds in verse 13. She says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Do you know what Jesus really is asking Hagar to do? He's asking her to repent of her pride. Yeah, we know that she's fled in fear from an angry mistress, but she's walked for miles. She's now in despair. She's pondering, where will I go? And she's, she's pregnant. She's got the worries of two people on her shoulders. Notice the Lord asks her two questions, but she only answers one of them. She doesn't answer, where are you going? She didn't know where she was going. She was at her wit's end. And the angel of the Lord tells her to go home and to submit to the mistress. To turn from her haughtiness and her pride and to submit. Now just put yourself in her shoes. How do you think that made her feel? Okay, if she was a, if she was a bad case by the well, you know, weakened by uh, her journey thus far, she might have regarded it as, you know, well, it might be all that bad. But if she was motivated to flee in the first place, she, she probably had a really tough time at home in Syria if it motivated her to run all the way to Egypt, 150 miles through an arid desert. So we can't exactly know what was in her mind, but it was obviously a very, very difficult decision to make, perhaps. But, of course, it was helped by the fact of who was making it for her or with her was Jesus. He wasn't asking her, really, in a way, to go back to an abusive household. Jesus wouldn't do that. He was saying, go back. Yes, there will possibly be affliction, but I'll be with you in it. Like Daniel, he'd be with him in the fire. And this is the best assurance, and this is the assurance that Jesus gives us as well in this room today, that despite the fact that life is tough, it'll throw curveballs at us, he's going to be with us right through it. And then to help her trust he tells her something personal about herself. He tells her, he says, look, at, I know you're pregnant. And probably something that Hagar didn't know herself. You're going to bear a son. And then he tells her that she's going to be the mother of a great nation. So I'd say that her heart was beginning to skip a bit now. So what did Hagar at that point in her life need most? Well, I think anyways, it was compassion, wasn't it? And this is what Jesus was giving her, and this is what Jesus is known for, because Jesus and our God is a God of compassion. And you know what? It wasn't the first time that Jesus met a woman by the well. 
It wasn't the first time that Jesus showed compassion to a woman who was spiritually dry at the well, spiritually thirsty. Remember John 4, when, when Jesus met this woman at the well and told her things that were personal to her and that he couldn't possibly have known if he was a normal man. And she ran away all excited and she said to the villagers, come and see a man who has told all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And not alone did he tell her personal things, he told her future things as well. Well, she did return and she must have told the whole story to Abram because Abram did call the child Ishmael, just as the angel of the Lord directed her. Now think of this for a second. The story kind of doesn't really end there. Hagar left as a young servant girl, pregnant, fearing for her life, comes to the end of herself at a well as in despair, meets the Lord who shows compassion on her, tells her to repent, to go back to possible affliction, but would be with her. With a promise of many offspring. Does it remind you of anyone? We should see ourselves in this. We were spiritually dry at that well. We met with a compassionate forgiver who looked at our sins and told us, go back into that world again, but I'll be with you this time and make many offspring for me. It's a wonderful news hidden away in this little story. It's ironic, isn't it, that the blessing that God had given Abraham and Sarai, and you know, the blessing that they sought, but they sought in the wrong way, God has now bestowed on Hagar. She's gone back with the blessing of being a mother of many nations, while the couple back in camp are still <laughs> childless, technically. They were disobedient. There was consequences of their sin, consequences on not waiting on the Lord. Now, what I said earlier was there were consequences not just for their disobedience in the, in the, in the present and the fact that they didn't actually conceive, but by, uh, by, by Abram capitulating with Sarah's plan, it served to cause more trouble, much more trouble, and even trouble that we see today in that Ishmael went on to father the Arabian nations and their hand have been firmly against Israel even to this day. How do we apply something like this to ourselves? Well, remember one of the questions I asked earlier on is, can you figure out what might have been the motivation or the problem with Syria's heart to cause her to think up this plan and to cause her husband uh, or to bring her husband into fault as well. Not that he was innocent in any way. He was as much to blame. But I think we've all figured out it was unbelief, wasn't it? Abram was spiritually immature. He was relying on his own reasoning at that time. But as you look, or as you read that passage, maybe later on in the week for yourself, think, how can I avoid making the same errors in my life? Because we do, don't we? Well, Someone once said that God is more concerned with your maturity than with your blessings. And just like Abraham, our blessings can sometimes be delayed or can be stopped altogether because of our running ahead like a small dog ahead of God. So to avoid making these errors, we have to do just one thing. We have to wait on God. Now, what does this mean? Well, it's an invitation to trust and to hope in God, but it's not a wishy-washy trust. It's a God based, just as we sang earlier, on God's faithfulness. He has acted in our lives. We can see where we were. We can see where we're going. 
He had acted in Abraham's life. We, he saw where he was and where he was going. And it's that assurance that God has come into our lives, has started something which we couldn't have fathomed before we met God. I mean, to think of, I don't know about you guys, but 20 years ago, if someone had told me I'd be preaching to a group of pretty much strangers that I had no blood connection with on a Sunday morning in a school in Nottnikara, I would have laughed and scoffed. Just as Sari I did later on in, in Book of Genesis when she heard the angel outside speaking to Abram saying that when I come next year, you will be with child. We laugh. But you know we shouldn't because if we look at all the little steps that God has done in our lives up to now, we can see where the picture is going. We can see where he's leading us. And that's what our faith is based on. It's not based on wishful thinking. It's based on stuff that God has done in our lives before. Even the people that are here listening to the sermon this morning, the people that we'll chat with later on, they're all testimony to what God is doing in this world and what God's doing in our lives. There are new families. You may look around and you mightn't see much in common with, with many people, but we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. This is our new family, a family in many cases that will be more precious than perhaps even our blood family. Well, how do we wait? Is this waiting passive? If we ask God for direction in life, as Abram and Sarai did, and they didn't seem to receive any, any answer, or in their case, they didn't receive the answer they wanted, how do we wait? Do we sit down as if we're waiting for a bus, or, or what kind of waiting is it? Well, I remember when I was a kid, the high point of our life as kids was when our, uh, our as kids in our household back in Connemara was when our American cousins would come home from Pittsburgh every two or three years. It was a time of great excitement. And for a month or two before it, we'd be cleaning the house and dad would have us all outside doing the gardening, clipping the hedges and doing all kinds of strange things that we would kind of wouldn't normally do. <laughs> just so that we'd be ready for, as we said, we'd be ready for the end. And of course, <laughs> it was a time as well of great excitement for the kids because it meant that the Americans would bring a tent, and we'd, all the kids would be out in the tent, so there'd be eight or nine of us out there, and the adults would be inside. So we waited, and we anticipated, but it was punctuated, but with much action, and much with, with much action and doing. It wasn't sitting on your backside, doing nothing. And so it is spiritually. Waiting for the Lord does not mean we tittle, twiddle our thumbs and wait for something to happen. We must be active. We must, as James said, we have to draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. And we must cleanse our hands. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We should do probably two things. We should engage in God's godly activity in expectation of his answer. We should pray, reminding ourselves of his faithfulness. And this is what we did during the week when we met up in a few houses. This is what we're going to do later on today as we walk around Galway. We're going to pray, anticipating God moving, maybe not this week, Maybe not next week, maybe not next year. I was speaking to Jason there during the week, and he, was, um, he told me a great story of uh, uh, one of the pr past pastors here in Galway City Baptist Church who was praying for his father for 40 years before he turned to the Lord and sought repentance. 40 years he was praying, and he never stopped. Um, another activity is we can read our Bibles, and we can engage in righteous self-talk with ourselves. 
Now, what's that? Well, it's read encouraging. You know when you're down, read encouraging verses out of your Bible which are appropriate to your situation. For example, when you're waiting on the Lord, what about Psalm 27, verse 14? Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or Psalm 40, verse 1, I love this one. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my ear. Memorize verses like these, and as you're going along in your daily walk or your, your job during times when you don't have to be thinking too deeply, um, preach these verses to yourself. Preach them back to you. Keep repeating them throughout the day. Different ones, not like a mantra, but you know what I'm saying, meditate on them, think about them. God can answer us in three ways, can't he? Yes, no, and um, wait. <laughs> we find waiting hard, don't we? If we fail in our waiting, repent of your hard-headedness. You know, our God is merciful. And, and we'll open in prayer this morning and saying, he knows we're needy, he knows we're weak. He's not distant and aloof. He's not this image of God that I certainly had as a child, that he was like a, a cranky grandfather sitting on the veranda swatting the grandchildren as they came too near him with the back of a stick, you know? He's not that type of God. He knows we're his children. He knows we will make mistakes. We will show unfaithfulness. We will be rash. We will run ahead of him. But you know what? It's his passion to restore wandering sheep. Psalm 23 says, He restores my soul for his name's sake. So remember that when Christians as well, when we go through trials in this world, family members perhaps who are not Christians will be looking at us to see how we're coping. Psalm 40 verse 3 says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So when people look at you and see how you're coping with, with hard times, with challenges, with afflictions, others will be watching you. And this is a great time and a great way of witnessing to them. They might say, well, boy, what kind of a God have you that you know he's going to listen to you and you're going to trust him? Even when you're not willing to take solutions in this world that may seem easier, I want to know a little bit more about this God. But we saw Abram and Sarai to close up. We saw them fail in today's passage. But, like us, God was gentle with them. God worked with them. He realized that, you know, Abram was a diamond, but he needed some hard, painful polishing. So it is with us. And we can see in chapter 22 of Genesis, he tests Abraham again this time with the real son of promise, Isaac. And he asks, he asks Abram, Abraham now to lead his son up onto Mount Moriah and to offer him up as a sacrifice. It's pretty weird. But just as the axe was about to come down on Isaac, God stopped him and provided a sacrifice. But 2,000 years later, another father led his son up a nearby mountain. And this time, the axe did not stop. Jesus was sacrificed as an offering for sin so that sinners could be forgiven and they could have a right relationship with God again. And we are just exactly like Hagar. We can call our God a God of seeing. He saw us in our sin and he knows where we're going. 
and he's waiting for us. But before we go away today, let's ask ourselves the question, where have you come from and where are you going? Let's pray. Father God, um, we thank you, Lord, that, that even in this um, you know, relatively little simple story in the Bible, that your fingerprints are all over it, Lord. It has depths and depths that we will continue to plunge into and to discover more and more about your mercy and about who you are as we mature more and more in Christ. A child can read them and get hope, and so can the most mature mature Christian, Lord. And we thank you. This is great testimony that this is your word. No man could have written this without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Your whole New Testament shows and points to Jesus. And he's there on the pages of the Old Testament to give us hope, to show that, God, you were faithful in the Old Testament times. And you are faithful in New Testament times and you're faithful in our day and age, Lord, and in my life and in our children's life and in their children's life, if that's your choice, to let this world rock on and roll on, Lord, till the end time. You are going to be with all your believers. Your providence is going to be directing all the events of history to bring about the outcome that you have in mind, Lord. You worked with Abram, you worked with Sarai, even in their sinfulness, you brought about the outcome that you sought. And Lord, all we can do is wait patiently for you and remind ourselves of your faithfulness. And we thank you, Lord, that you've opened our eyes and let us see in a small way these things, but that we can encourage one another and others, Lord, to come to you and to repent and to say that, Lord, I have seen you. You are a God of seeing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.